Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rupert. Good morning. I'm Steve McDonough. Oh, good morning. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you timestamp that with a good morning. We are doing it early, which is uh, which is good for us. You know, it's nice. Our brains are fun. My wife, Amy, says that I'm funnier in the mornings, so now I kind of feel like there's a little pressure on. Well... <laughs> You can yeah. only possibly be funny. No, that is true. The only way is up sometimes. Uh, well, if you are new to the podcast on every episode of But I Digest, we like to feature a specific food or ingredient, peeling back the fuzzy skin of its history, removing the stone hard pit to reveal its heroes, and celebrating all of its juicy, sweet hoopla. And our topic this week is peaches. Aren't you proud? I actually did a proper intro. I I do enjoy that. (laughs) Peeling back the fuzzy skin was a little graphic, but got it. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that could be a little, that could be a little graphic. Can I, all right, all right. I'm just going to, sorry, I'm digressing already. I once worked at a restaurant where uh, we had a grilled calamari salad. Right on yep. for lunch, and this uh, it was the business. Uh, the business people came in during lunch, and this one businessman orders this grilled calamari salad, and he looked at it and he sent it back because it was quote too graphic, <laughs> and and I was like, I can't even argue with that. That is yep. the greatest. I mean, it's it's total bullshit, but still. I mean, yep. Uh, excuse me, waiter. My uh, my my squid looks like a squid. I only can't handle the fact that my squid. Not <laughs> the best. It's very squiddy. So my salad is too graphic. Yes, we used to um, we used to serve the whole rainbow trout with the head on because you know as many people know that the cheek of the trout or the mini fish is the best part. And there were people that would say, "Can you please take this back to the kitchen and remove the head? I can't stand for my dinner to be looking back at me." Yes. So, uh, but we don't have that problem with peaches, even though they do have a velvety downy skin. Uh, they don't have eyes looking back at us. Uh, and, you know, I am sitting in Peach, the Peach capital of uh, the, the self-proclaimed uh, Peach capital of uh, the United States. And uh, I am came prepared to class today because I have uh, some ripe peaches right show in front tell. of me. Show, show and tell. tell. For a podcast, it's very important to have those, right. <laughs> those show and tell elements. Um, so let's talk about peaches. I, I've grown up with them my entire life, obviously being from the peach state. Um, let's start with what they are. So, um, you know, I love talking about all this plant nerdy stuff. And uh, the Latin name is Prunus persica. Uh, which sounds good. Could be a stage name for somebody. Miss Persica. I like that. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, um, like that. So uh, peaches are a member of the Rosaceae family, which is basically the rose family, which also includes fruits like plums, apricots, cherries. Uh, but peaches are kind of known for having that fuzzy, velvety skin. Now, if it didn't have that fuzz, what would you call a fuzzless peach? A nectarine. There you go. It's exactly right. A, oh, a nectarine. Yes. Yep. yes. Uh, you always get If you're keeping score, people, I just got one. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, and so I, I get asked that as a, as a culinary person, what's the difference? The difference really is the fuzz. It's just been, it's a, uh, it's a plant that was sort of selectively bred to exclude the fuzzy gene, uh, which is the, the thing that kind of gives the fruit that downy feeling. Now, Peaches and all of these uh, these fruits that I just mentioned in this family are classified as a droop. Do you know that word droop? D R U P E. Oh no, no, yeah. I didn't. Know so we're, we're gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna challenge you in life to use the word droop more often. So a droop is basically a fruit that has a hard stone. So those are droops. Oh, we um, call them stone fruits, which well, makes yeah, exactly. more sense. But if you want to make up your own words, I know this you is, can do that. This is the no, biological. whatever. We'll all pretend like we understand what you're saying. And well, this you is are, why whatever. you are learning a new word today in droops. So I, I want to try to. Yeah. Are we? 
You are. And I want to try to incorporate it. So like when you when you read those wine descriptions, it says, you know, it has these soft elements of of stone fruit and lavender. I just if we just called it droopy, right? It's a very droopy wine. I think that that sounds sad. I mean, droopy, (laughs) you were going to think it's D-R-O-O-P. Oh, the dog. Like like droopy. Hold on. You knew. Hold on. I need a second. You know something? Where where is he? Hold on. Hold on. You know something? This makes me mad. That was droopy. Dog. <laughs> I love droopy. I've kind of you know, I used to be able to do them better. You didn't. Um, you didn't hear that. You didn't hear the word droopy in there. I'm not until I just droop? said it right because of your in. spelling. Yeah, D R U P E. That's right. Yeah, we should just go back and erase that whole bit. No, no. It was, it was any time. Any time we can work in droopy the dog. I think that's great with one of your voices. So uh, you knew something that makes me mad. Oh, that's there awesome. it is. There that it was is. Awesome. That's going to be my ringtone. Um, so now because. Peaches are so closely related to cherries and plums and apricots. Um, you might have seen this, and you can get these sort of Franken fruits, right? These Frankenstein combinations, like pleaches. Pleaches are a cross between a peach and a plum. Pleaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are apriums, which are uh, sometimes called pluots, which are basically a cross between apricots mm-hmm. and plums. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are pluaries, which is a plum and cherry mix. And then my favorite, really? yeah. Blueberries. How big uh, are they? They're like a. Sorry, like I know a, I'm interrupting because no, you have no, a no. list, but seriously, but it, how big are they? It's like a large cherry. I mean, it's like a, a large cherry. Yeah. Okay. It's a two bite cherry. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, and then my favorite is the piacatum. P. No, picatum. A picatum. Uh, actually, that sounds like a medical term. Uh, a picatum is a peach apricot plum. So it's a three-way hybrid there, which is kind of cool. So um, it's fun huh. because you get the you get some of the benefits of each of these things and. If you are a gardener, you can actually get a, a fruit tree that has been grafted. And so on one tree, you can have a, a tree that produces peaches, nectarines, plums, and cherries on one tree because they're so closely related. So I, I'm uh, not on board with that. I don't like that. Well, I mean, you know, if you've got limited space and you want to have a no. whole bunch of fruits. So. No, I say if you have limited space, you just do one thing well. That's there you all. go. Well, that's like that's that. very good. So uh, now – Peaches, when you ever buy them, you ever notice that sometimes you buy them and the stone just falls right out, and other times you're sitting there just cussing because you're losing half the fruit because it's connected to the stone. Well, they basically come in two varieties. There's the cling stone, which as the name suggests, the the meat sort of clings to the stone. Uh, and then there's the freestone, which literally the peaches that I that I have in my hand, I can twist them in half and the stone falls right out. Wow. Um, which that's awesome, right? You don't have to sit there. And they, they usually, the, the cling stones happen earlier in the season. The free stones happen later in the season. So Are we late in the season already? I mean, yeah, we, we it's are. the end of July for us. Yeah, this is yeah. late in the season? It okay. is for, for in the south it is, right? So they uh-huh. start kind of in June. We're getting into August now. So, uh, okay. so yes, it's late in the season. Now, I was just yesterday in Alabama, which is to my west, and uh, I seem to be like this divining rod for farmer's markets. I woke up super early, and I was going to go take a random walk. I start in totally arbitrary direction smack into a farmer's market right by the river it was beautiful and um, this guy had this table full of peaches and he had four or five varieties and the smell was so intoxicating and i had no plans to buy anything because i was going out on a three-mile walk so i walked away from the farmer's market but something that that man said kept playing in my head as i walked and he said these peaches are so juicy that you need to either eat them over the sink or get a roll of paper towels. 
And that idea was such a sales pitch to me. I'm like, oh my God. So yeah. I ended up walking the two miles back to the farmer's market, bought about <laughs> 10 pounds of peaches in a, in a Piggly Wiggly grocery bag. And oh, then, I do love a Piggly Wiggly. Might as well walk to the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> I walked away from the farmer's market with a Piggly Wiggly bag. And about a mile back into my walk, I started questioning my sanity. Like, why the hell did I just buy 10 pounds of peaches thinking, oh, I'll just walk a them back? Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of peaches, but they were so good. And so again, they are that uh, freestone. But there was a lady standing at the market that said um, her just heard me talking to the guy and said you did you say you were from georgia i said yeah i'm going back tomorrow and she said are you allowed to bring alabama peaches back to georgia and i said well i hope they, I hope they don't stop me at the border like checking what's in the piggly wiggly bag sir <laughs> <laughs> these are uh, these are georgia peaches that i brought across to alabama and i'm just bringing them back home no 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 those look like uh, chilton county peaches um <laughs> anyway so these are from tuscaloosa alabama so i do feel a bit like a traitor uh, mm. with my Alabama peaches, but they're delicious. Now, uh, let's talk about the history. Now, um, the peach, the plant, we believe originated in China, and we know that it's been cultivated there since at least 1000 BCE. And it still has special significance in Chinese culture. It's considered to be the tree of life, and uh, peaches are symbols of immortality and unity. And to this day, peach blossoms are still carried by Chinese brides at their at their wedding. So I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. big, uh, big part of Chinese culture. Now, peaches, when you were when you yeah. were a little Chinese bride, did you carry this? Uh, no, I missed that. I missed that sadly. It was a, it was more of a shotgun arrangement, so we didn't have time for. <laughs> 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 it was also in February, which is not uh, classically not right. peach season. So, right. uh, man, I'm getting all sorts of rumors started here. Now, um, from China, peaches traveled west via the Silk Roads to Persia. Uh, which is how they got the, the Latin name Prunus Persica, because meaning Persian. Uh, and for those of you who are geographically challenged, which I believe you've admitted once or twice, uh, that might be you. Girl, yeah. I am geographically challenged. <laughs> so uh, ne next quiz, you can get another point. We're uh, in uh, modern all day. Right, all right, let's give it a shot. Modern day geography, where's Persia? Uh, it's like Iran, I think. There you right? go. You got it. <gasps> you got it. Dude, if you're, if you're keeping... <laughs> But when I get like this, you know I'm talking to you, Amy. I have two points. <laughs> yes, you do have two points. Uh, but you know, I, I have to. I have to admit my ignorance. I didn't realize that um, that you know that Persia was uh, or Iran was once Persia, and Persia was a giant empire at one point, right? I mean, even uh, mm. stretching all the way down to the Indian subcontinent, giant. So. Um, but it was in Persia that Alexander the Great first encountered peaches, and he uh, he mentions about a half a dozen types uh, in his accounts from his uh, exploits during that time that were being grown in Persia. And he then brought peaches to the Greeks, and then from Greece, the peaches eventually made their way to the Rome. Obviously, I'm uh, I'm condensing world history down into about yeah. two sentences. Yeah. Um, but uh, we do have a lot of records from those times, and we see that. Uh, they were like a, a high price commodity. And so um, in the years sort of 50 to 20 BCE, Romans grew and sold peaches for the modern equivalent of about four fifty each, $4.50 per peach. Oh, my gosh. And this is, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, and they referred to the peach as the Persian apple. Oh. And as the Roman Empire spread, that name kind of held. So in a lot of languages, uh, the, the term for peach really is a variation of the word Persia. So oh. I thought that was kind of interesting. So yeah. um, 
And then, of course, you know, as 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 I mentioned, as Rome kind of spread, so did the cultivation of the preach. Uh, not, the, not the preach. I'm getting. Uh, I'm preaching about the history of the peach. But Spaniards brought peaches to the Americas. The the French brought them to Louisiana. The the English brought them to their colonies. Uh, and we know that uh, Columbus brought peach trees to America on his second and third voyages to the New World because they have records of all the things that they brought. So, mm-hmm. um, so peaches have been with us for for quite some time. Now. I did mention that Georgia is the peach state, uh, but have you heard of the peach war here in the South? No, I did not. Let's, well, let's hear about a peach war. Yeah, because it wasn't really a war. It's really more of a skirmish, uh, more of a kind of a <laughs> passive aggressive dance, if you will. Um, so, you know, when you think of Georgia off the top of your head, I mean, peaches have to be like one of the top three things, right? I think that and I think that you guessed. Dang, people in Georgia have decided to name all of your streets Peachtree Street. <laughs> That's what I think. I think that anybody else, I think that you're just afraid that we're gonna you're gonna be invaded by the North. And so what you've done is you've given all your streets the same name so that when we go there, we're like, I don't know where I am going. Yep. It's you're, Peach exactly right. Peachtree Street, Peachtree Avenue. It's yep. it's not, it's it's uh, you people are a mess. Uh, and to be honest, as a as a native, I get confused too. And even if you try with uh, with GPS, it gets confused because you're right. There are way too many peach uh, peach tree things. So were we not clever enough to, to come up with some other some even just numbers? Numbers are fine. We can be 37th Street or whatever, right? But no, everything's a peach. So. No, but you do have that giant peach water tower thing. We do. We do. I love that. Yep. yep. You know, in- I love a giant kind of you know. Oh, yeah. An inflatable mascot yep. and a giant yep. peach water tower. I love all that stuff. And you know where that is? That's the giant in... artichoke. Remember the giant oh, artichoke? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I love those. That, that peach water tower is in Peach County, Georgia. I mean, oh, we're continue. so... You people. <laughs> we are so branded. We're committed. You know, and Georgia really started as a uh, silkworm. Mulberry trees were planted in Georgia by the colonists because they thought the... Um, uh, they thought that this region was very similar to where the mulberry trees in China were growing. So they Georgia was established as a silk colony. That was supposed to be our main export. Um, did you know that? Did I just uh, no. wrinkle your brain? Did you know that we have a mulberry tree in our backyard? I, yeah, I do. Over actually. by the garage? Yeah. It's and nice. that's the one. Did I tell you that when we first moved in? And it's a it's a dirty tree. I mean, it drops mulberries oh, yeah. all over and then you track them into the house. I, I, I'm not a fan of it. But my mother, my English mother, when she first got here uh, to the house and she saw the mulberry, she's like, oh, this is lovely. Look, it's dropping mulberries. Dan will be able to make some wine. I'm like, what the hell do you think our life is that Dan is going to gather these mulberries and make wine in our basement from the mulberries next to our garage tree. I, I can see him in his bistro apron, you know, sort of right. gathering up the, the bottom of the apron. Gathering up the mulberries. Yeah, I can oh, totally God's see sake. that. Uh, I do love a good mulberry, but they they only ripe for about two days and the birds get to them before you. And so then the birds distribute the mulberry. All over your car. Everywhere, everywhere. Mm. So, uh, but let's get back to, to our peaches. Um, Georgia, again, it's the peach state. Well, South Carolina decided to kind of puff its chest up and do a little bit of, uh, you know, thumping uh, a couple of years ago on Twitter. And things got a little uh, kind of passively, aggressively ugly uh, when a tweet from the South Carolina's Department of Agriculture came across that said um, South- Department of, of Agriculture sort of claims that we grow three times more peaches than Georgia does. It was three X, three X more peaches uh, than Georgia does. And uh, that's kind of big, um, you know, when you're when you're 
you're the northern neighbor. You're the upstairs neighbor kind of saying, hey, we're better than you downstairs, right? Yeah. So Georgia's Department of Agriculture, which I didn't even know these, these guys had Twitter accounts, they shot back. Well, we say that ours are 3X sweeter in all caps, all, you know, because that's very aggressive too. You put all caps. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So they say we are three times sweeter. And South Carolina kind of did the, what's the Italian where they kind of, you know. You're putting they, your finger on your fingers you know under I mean? your chin. And... They kind of flick out like it's sort yeah, of like yeah, a yeah, threat, yeah. right? It's a very uh, aggressive thing. South Carolina replied with a three-word reply: "Bless your heart." Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, so you got you got owned. Yeah, and bless your heart if you're not. Uh, oh, that was totally. You know, you know that that's uh, that that's Lindsey Graham running that Twitter account. <laughs> if like we're having a war, bless your heart. Bless your heart. That's, that's Lindsey Graham there. Yeah. Behind the- <laughs> well, you know, in the South, I got to tell you, if you're having like kind of words or a feud with somebody, when you just kind of turn your back as if like, you know what, I'm so above this, you guys are so far beneath me, to yeah. say bless your heart is kind of yeah. like the final, you know, that's it, bless your heart. Yeah. So it sounds very sweet, like a genuine blessing. But uh, if you're from yeah. this, this neck of the woods, you know, that's a passive aggressive throwdown. So as it turns out, neither state holds the title technically if you go by numbers or money um they're not even in the top four uh and you want to guess which state grows probably more of anything in this country um california you got it so hey, you're three there's your third <gasps> oh you my gosh i won i won i won <laughs> i have yes. so flipped our roles i'm asking you quiz questions but but yes but I, I got mean, all three right yes you Excellent. did and and uh, california really if you if this were the wrestling world i mean this is like the um hulk hogan of states right it, it holds all of the championship belts for pretty much any fruit or vegetable um so but this feud between uh, georgia and south carolina kind of caught the national media attention, right? And even NPR was doing a big uh, story on it. And so they they got the, at the time, Georgia Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black um, to kind of comment on it. And he wanted to turn in the light of the fact that, hey, you guys are calling yourself the Peach State, but you're not even, you're not even close to the top, you know, producer. And he said, well, we want to turn our focus away from quantity to quality. All right. Yeah. And he says, uh, just as gold, I'm going to do my um, my foghorn leghorn voice here. I'm ready. <laughs> as if that's the way we talk. But just as gold is the standard for currency and vadeas are the standard for sweet onions, we feel that our rich heritage and longstanding research efforts with our land-grant universities make sweet Georgia peaches the benchmark that others strive for. How do you like that? You know something that makes me mad. <laughs> Which is exactly what Lindsey Graham, I mean, uh, South Carolina, uh, <laughs> probably replied. No, but South Carolina's commissioner of agricultural, he kind of called a truce with this very well-crafted tweet. He said, the truth is, George is not that far away from us, and we'd like to encourage all folks to eat peaches from the South. So I there thought that go. was kind of a nice, uh, let's put an end to this uh, this feud. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now Georgia still considers itself to be hashtag blessed uh, to be the peach, the, the peach state. This is from their Department of Agriculture's website. Uh, and it is the uh, it is the home of the world's largest peach cobbler. Now, it's not inflatable, I will tell you. Sadly. Ooh, I do love a peach cobbler. Can you imagine and it, uh, the world's largest inflatable peach cobbler? I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> uh, but every year they bake a giant peach cobbler at the Georgia Peach Festival, which is in which county? Uh, 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 Putnam. No, if you were paying attention earlier, where's the water tower? Uh, 
What is every street name? What, what are we Peach talking tree. about? Peach tree. <laughs> no, it's Peach. Peach. It's Beach Peach, County. You Peach County. Peach. Oh, I don't know if I should take a point away. I just Peach uh, Point. Peach Pit. Peach Fuzz. Yeah. Peach Fuzz County. Oh, there could be. Um, but anyway, so yeah, but we just missed it, Steve. We just missed it. It was the uh, first weekend of June, as it is every year. Um, so we just missed our our chance to go oh. and be uh, judges for the uh, the largest peach cobbler, which I do love a good peach cobbler. Oh, who say. doesn't? Yeah. Put some. Uh, yeah, that's one of the few things I don't like. Uh, a lot of ice cream on my desserts. I like my ice cream separate. Yeah. But something like a peach cobbler when it's warm and it becomes kind of you know. A substitute for whipped cream and oh yeah you know it kind of melts i do i do really enjoy that to me that is the point like that i always talk about borders and intersections for some reason i'm obsessed with that i i love where the solid becomes a liquid the hot meets the cold like at that intersection it's something magic happens well like the one of the classic the 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 classic peach desserts is exactly that a peach melba oh, yeah. and because that is uh blanched sugary peaches with vanilla ice cream and a raspberry puree. And what I think is interesting about Peach Melba too is it is, it's specifically uh, a, a kind of a branded because it's named after a person, a branded thing. So, I mean, you can have peach cobbler, you know, cherry cobbler, you can all, have all kinds, but the, the Peach Melba is specifically about that. And it was developed by uh, Escoffier. So I don't know if people you've probably heard of Escoffier, Auguste Escoffier, but um, if you haven't, we can't really talk about the Peach Melba and go in this direction unless we discuss who he is. So Georges Auguste Escoffier, he was born in 1846. He died in 1935. He's the father of modern French cuisine, and he's arguably the most influential French chef of all time. So Escoffier is known as the king of chefs and the chef of kings. Nice. So he modernized traditional French cooking methods. He had served in the French army. And so he took all those standards that he had learned and he applied them to the kitchen. So he's the one who created the formalized kitchen brigade system, meaning that each cooking position is clearly defined. You have your executive chef, then your chef de cuisine, then your sous chef, then your station chefs, like your pastry chef, your saucier, and then your stage or your interns. So his kind of uh, preference for structure and simplicity, he extended that to his menus. He was the chef at the Savoy Fonfon, and the Ritz Carlton, both of the ones in London. And he, he moved away from the French tradition of putting many plates on the table at once. And he introduced the first a la carte menu. Oh, I, didn't I mean, that's that. huge, right? Yeah, that is big. So and by that, that means the, you know, the breakdown of ordering like your your starter and then ordering your entree and your dessert. So his first cookbook, uh, the Escoffier cookbook, which is it's, it's something called something different in French, but we're going to call it what we say in English. <laughs> so that's basically, you know, it's a culinary standard and it's where Escoffier is the fellow who introduced the five mother sauces. So that if you don't know, you've probably if you if you enjoy food and food podcast, you probably have an idea of what the five mother sauces are. I don't want to put you on the spot, Hans. Do you want to, do you want to list them or you want me to list them? Oh, so I, I know we've got a, we've got a hollandaise. We've got a, um, a sauce, Robert, I think we've got a bechamel. Um, that's yeah. I don't know. It's been a while since I've There's caught up with that. Espanol. Espanol. That's the one. Uh, bechamel, hollandaise, velouté and tomate. Okay. I don't know if I'm saying the tomate one or if they I say like tomate. It. I'm not sure how they say it. I'd like so, it better if you said it like droopy, but. 
<laughs> Tomate. Hollandaise, Beckerman, Espanol. Nice. So Very you well could done. say that he was um he was kind of the first celebrity chef because he set the precedent in where in which the chef would come out of the kitchen and into the dining room. Chefs didn't do that. They were uh, they were the help. They were the working class servants. But when he was the chef in residence at the Paris Ritz in the London Savoy, he would also connect with his his guests by naming hundreds of dishes after famous people, especially a lot of opera singers and performers. So he created Cherry's Jubilee for Queen Victoria's Jubilee, Dauphin potatoes mm. for the French court of the Dauphin, um, two dishes and a sauce for the very famous actress Sarah Bernhardt at the time. Edward the Seventh Lamb Chops. Who did he create those for, Hans? Uh, um, Edward the Seventh. <laughs> yes, and for his wife, he named um, uh, he named he named nothing, nothing. He named <laughs> all these foods after people, tons of people. His wife's name has been lost to history. Nobody knows this woman's name. It's like she never existed. Well. She's just, gone. No one, no one knows her name because he didn't even name anything. And he did name two dishes, however, after Dame Nellie Melba. She got uh, peach Melba and Melba toast. That's right. Yeah. Right. So who is this chick and why does she get two famous dishes that are still in circulation? So Dame Nellie Melba, she was this wildly popular opera singer in the 1920s. Her real name, that, by the way, this is we're starting to go off topic. So here we go. Um, <laughs> Buckle in. Her real, her real name was Helen Porter Mitchell. She was born outside of Melbourne, Australia in 1861. So she took the stage name Nellie Melba as a riff, Nellie a riff on Helen, and more importantly, Melba as part of Melbourne. Mm. So pay attention to that because this whole Melbourne thing is important. So her mother died when she was 19 and her father moved the family to Queensland, which is 1400 miles across the country. So if you are in Australia, it's like it's like the equivalent of New York City to Oklahoma City. Well, wow. and in the 18, what is this now? It's the turn of the century. I mean, you know, she's not commuting. So she met her husband there and she had a son. And a couple of years later, she divorced her husband, moved back to Melbourne to pursue a singing career as an operatic soprano. So this is a pretty independent woman at the turn of the century that she's like divorcing her husband, grabbing her kid, moving 1400 miles back because she thinks she's going to be a singer. So she is going to be a singer. She became one of the most famous singers in the world. And I, I should put a link. I'm sure I will put a link to our Facebook page, but you should all listen to just a little bit of her voice. It's, it's just crystal clear and beautiful. Some people said it was too perfect and almost boring and it's, it's perfection. And uh, but you know, there's always going to be haters. It, she's, <laughs> I mean, she was hugely famous for a reason. Uh, but she was also a champion of supporting new music. And her era, new music was like Puccini's La Boheme. That was brand new at the time. Wow. So at that time, she visits Puccini in Italy to study La Boheme with him. And then she took La Boheme on tour and she kind of appropriated the role of Mimi as her signature role. You know, an opera diva, diva will always have like her role. Sure. So her role was, was Mimi. So she was one of the, you know, she was known as Mimi in La Boheme and, you know, Mimi dies of tuberculosis, which is not what kills Mimi in today's installment of Stop oh, no. the Striker! Yeah. All right. All right. Let's do it. So, this rock musical opened on Broadway in 1996 
It's loosely based on La Boheme. In both the opera and the musical, audiences are introduced to Mimi as the sweet and seductive girl next door whose candle has gone out. In the opera, Mimi asks her neighbor, Rodolfo, for matches to light her candle. And we learn that Mimi is plagued by tuberculosis. But in this Broadway musical, Mimi asks her neighbor, Roger, to light her candle. And we learn she is a nightclub dancer addicted to heroin and suffers from AIDS. Songs include La Vie Boheme, and Seasons of Love. And the musical is? I, I genuine, and this is like totally in my era, right? I mean, so this isn't that old, this far back, but I have no idea. I have no idea. Oh, I, I don't. Well, if you know this musical, and I know you do, please go to our, uh, our Facebook page. I will put up our Stump the Straight Guy, and you can go on there and tell us the answer, and Hans can read it and find out what he has missed in his life over these past uh, 200 X minutes, as you know what I'm saying to you right now. So uh, last episode, Stump the Straight Guy, was won by Hans. It involved the German chorus girls with bratwurst on their heads. And you yep. guessed it correctly with the producers. It was That's right. for Hitler. Okay, th this was a fun one. Um, I liked today's Stump the Straight Guy because the musical just makes me, makes me happy. Uh, anyway, we're talking about Dame Nellie Melba, remember That's that? right, that's so right. She is now highly sought all over Europe. She's like the Edwardian equivalent of a major celebrity, but she's not without scandal. So although she's working to promote stage performers as respectable, because, you know, women on stage at that time were not respectable. They were thought of as very loose women, terrible right. morals. And she's seen as a runaway wife, a neglectful mother who's struggling with her husband over custody of her son. And she's having an unforgivably indiscreet affair with Philip the Duke of Orleans, the future claimant to the throne of France, who happens to be eight years younger than her. Oh. All right, all right, I'll see you, <laughs> Nellie. I'll see you. Is that the cougar? Is that that point? I probably not. They don't have cougars. I think she was a little, no, I mean, she was still, I guess so, but she was still too oh. young for a cougar. So In Australia, she couldn't be a cougar. It'd have to be like a Tasmanian tiger. It has to be a marsupial version of a cougar. She was a, yeah, she was one of those mean kangaroos. <laughs> so after, uh, she did a command performance for Queen Victoria, and uh, the queen was told she is married to Mr. Armstrong, who belongs to a very respectable English family. She has been to some extent spoilt by her success, but may also pass as respectable. So they lied to Queen Victoria to try to, you know, just kind of get her past. So all the while, she's really striving to stay connected to her roots as an Australian. And she's really refusing to play into that whole English cultural superiority of the time. So don't forget, this is what I was saying. She named herself after the city she was from. I mean, that's how strong her cultural connection was. Uh, and in her autobiography, she wrote, if you wish to understand me at all, you must understand first and foremost that I am an Australian. Wow. So she founded, she's pretty cool. She founded an Australian opera company and it performed in Sydney and Melbourne. But she wanted opera to be accessible to all Australians. So she worked to secure reduced price tickets on steamboats and trains for all Australians to travel to these capital cities to, to be able to see this. And during World War I, she raised 100,000 uh, pounds. I think it was pounds at that time. It wasn't the Australia dollar yet. Uh, she raised 100,000 pounds for the funds for the war effort. Now, that is about... Four and a half million dollars today. Wow. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And for that, that's how she became a dame, dame commander of the Order of the British Empire. She's arguably Australia's most famous woman, and she appears on the $100 bill. Wow. Dame Nellie Melba on the $100 bill. So she performed across the globe and visited Ireland. And on one visit, she stayed at Dooley's Hotel in Burr in County Offaly. And in one of the first, I guess you would say, free open air concerts, she opened up her window and she sang to the crowd below who had gathered in Emmett Square outside. So I fell down a rabbit hole (laughs) and I am going to drag you all with me. And for this, I maybe should apologize or maybe whatever, but here we go. All right. Let's do it. We are going off-road. So in Emmett Square stands this tall plinth, a huge column built in the mid-1700s with nothing on it. So this column is standing there empty in the square that she is singing for, right? At one time, this column held a statue of the Duke of Cumberland. So England's Prince William Augustus was the Duke of Cumberland. In the mid-1700s, for a short time, he was one of England's greatest heroes. He was a a, a military champion, the defender of Protestant England against uh, the barbaric Scots. His father was King George II, and King George II had statues of William placed in a park in London and at the center of this Irish town in Burr. The town of Cumberland, Maine, which is also a county in Maine, was named after him. Hmm. He was known as Sweet William. So many people believe that the flower, Sweet William, is named for this guy. Oh, oh, okay. I'm on, I'm already on a side note, but I have a double side (laughs) note because in all of my research on this, I came across this article on Queen Anne, right? And I found the best spell check error ever. What's that? People, this has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) Um, So this article was talking about Queen Anne. It said she died in 17 oat cake. (laughs) <laughs> 17 oat cake 17 oat cake so i had to read it four times i'm like that must mean something right and finally i realized that that for some reason whatever they were doing they couldn't put when they were typing it wouldn't write the whole number it it this article did it six times it said king robert won victory in 13 oat cake and king james got good news in 16 oat cake is it 08, we think? Is that what they were maybe? No, she died in dictated? 1714, not oh. 17 oat cake. I don't know. It was, it just amused me and I thought I would share it. Hey, was it was Quaker, was Quaker like the advertiser for that article? Like Quaker Oh, Oats, maybe, maybe it was a little subliminal. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, oh, I'm craving some damn oat cakes some now. Oat cakes. So back to this bastard, Sweet William Cumberland. So he's known as, he's known for the Battle of uh, Culloden. The Jacobite Rebellion was a rebellion um, fought by people who were supporting Bonnie Prince Charlie and his claim to restore the House of Stuart from Scotland, bring him back to the British throne. So the battle itself was over in half an hour. It was a complete rout. Wow. The British destroyed the Scottish Highlanders. Uh, Less than 100 of Cumberland's forces were killed and 1,500 Highland troops were left dead on the field in half an hour. But it wasn't good enough for Cumberland, who ordered his troops and the Royal Navy to pursue and hunt these vermin amongst their lurking hills. So he and his men, they committed atrocities. They bayoneted the wounded that were left on the battlefield. And anybody who retreated and any innocent bystanders 
were all clubbed and bayoneted. They continued to march. They hacked civilians to death, burned villages, seized all the farmers' livestock so that they couldn't make a living afterwards, destroyed any semblance of life in the highlands. I even found this uh, old engraving of the Duke of Cumberland with a dagger in his mouth, basically skinning a captured Scott. We just went dark. We just went way dark. Yeah. So it's like genocide by royal soldiers. And after he defeated him, that defeated them all, the Scottish Highlanders weren't allowed to speak their language. They couldn't wear their tartans. They couldn't play the bagpipe. So in Scotland and Ireland, he was known as Butcher Cumberland, a war Mm. criminal who became an embarrassment in English history. So BBC History Magazine, uh, those readers voted him the seventh most reviled Britain of the past 1,000 years. He's just behind Jack the Ripper. Wow. So the reason this plinth stands empty outside of Dooley's Hotel, where our hero once sang, is that the statue of Butcher Cumberland was removed in 1915 for repairs. For repairs. For repairs and never put back. So this is why I find this interesting. This is where I'm going with this. Uh, Cumberland's fall from you know hero to monster. It it it's a perfect example of the pitfalls of us naming things after political figures. Yep. Because with the passage of time, as 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 one era's political views fade or transition, and we grow as a people, a person's place in history can be reevaluated. So the original Cumberland statue stood for about 100 years, meaning it took Britain about 100 years to understand, like, the entirety of Cumberland. It right. took us like 100 years. <laughs> Robert Ely. I'm Robert Ely. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Sorry. Uh, something got a little, in, my, uh, in my throat. Oat, little oat cake in the throat yeah, there. Yeah, a little, little oat cake. cake. Like, 100 years later, we can readdress these things and yep. not feel bad about it, not feel like we're stealing something from ourselves, right? So my last thought on this is because this uh, really encapsulates my point. In London's Cavendish Square, where the other empty columns stood after that, after that second statue had been removed, a South Korean artist, her name was uh, Mik Young Shin, she re-sculpted the Butcher Cumberland mo- Monument. She re-sculpted it. Okay, here's your quiz. You ready? Sure. Did Mik Young Shin re-sculpture Butcher Cumberland on horseback out of A, soap, B, horsehair, C, Skittles, or D, Guinness bottles? Wow. I mean, all of those sound difficult and creative. Um, I'm going to go, what year was it again? Remind me. What year? Oh, this is recent. Recent. Uh, I'm going to go for Skittles. Let's go for Skittles. Uh, she is world-renowned for soap sculptures. Oh. So they're deliberately supposed to erode mm. to convey how historic events are temporary and how as time passes, they get perceived differently. So her quote is, as the sculpture erodes, the scented soap will disintegrate and release a perfumed aroma. The details of the statue will soften and fade over time, symbolizing the mutable meanings we attach to public monuments and in a wider sense to all aspects of history. And I think that's freaking brilliant. That is brilliant and much better than my guess at Skittles, although taste the rainbow. But uh, but no, I think that's that's great. And you're sort of cleaning. I mean, to take the analogy for yeah, you're yeah, sort of cleaning. Yeah. You're washing away that. You know what I mean? It's a soap. And then it, there's the perfumed aroma of yeah. let's let's start fresh and let's. I just, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be on a literal soapbox here, but I just thought when I read about the 
the I like I said, I fell down the rabbit hole. But when I was reading about the soap sculpture, I'm like, this is so interesting. I really no, want great. to share this. That's great. Okay, so what are we talking about? Cabbage, uh, Peach Melba. <laughs> Nelly is a guest at the Savoy Hotel where Escoffier was the chef. And as the story goes, Nelly sent Escoffier tickets to her performance at uh, she was doing a uh, Lohengrin. And the production of Lohengrin features a beautiful boat in the shape of a swan. So the following evening, Escoffier presents Nelly with a dessert of fresh peaches served over vanilla ice cream in a silver dish perched atop a swan carved from ice. Nice. And he originally called the dish peach with a swan. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you're going to have to believe me that it sounds better in French. <laughs> And a few years later, he added some sweetened raspberry puree to it, and then he started calling it Peach Melba. Uh, but he did not name it again after his poor wife. Yeah, that's he a shame. also named Melba Toast for her, um, which he either did because she wasn't feeling well and it helped her stomach, or she was trying to lose weight. It depends on who you listen to. And I thought Melba Toast was what do you think it is? Oh, it's sort of dry, crackery bread, like almost dehydrated, fall apart, crispy, crunchy bread. Yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't think much more of it, but there's actually like a preparation for it. You know, like it's he's got like a recipe. Huh. You toast a slice of bread because bread, I think bread uh, back then was generally thicker than it is now. Hmm. Right. I mean, we get it pretty thin from the right. supermarket. Right. So you toast a slice of bread and then you split it through the middle. So that way you've got two untoasted surfaces again. Okay. Yes. Then you retoast those under a grill. And that's Melba toast. And Escoffier originally called it Toast Marie after Caesar Ritz of the Ritz Carlton, his wife, Marie. But after her husband died and Marie ran the Ritz Hotel, she was a smart cookie, too. And she understood the power of branding. So she's like, you know, what? Well, I'm fine with Melba toast. Well, and, and also, if you think about it, like you have the peach melba, which is a sort of multi-layered, complicated fruit and sauce and uh, whatever, and then you have toast. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so if if the if the toast recipe were named after me, I'm like, I think I got the short end of the bread here because <laughs> I think I, I got the crusty end. Yeah, of I, I, you're naming the dish of toast after me, and I love a good piece of toast, but uh, yeah, I feel it's be a little slighted. Well, he also created melba garniture, a third dish. Wow. Have you ever heard of this? No. Me neither. It's a tomato stuffed with chicken, truffles, and mushrooms in a, a, a velouté sauce, which oh. sounds delicious. It does but sound we've good. never heard of that. So since that one has fallen to history, maybe he could have named that after his poor wife, his poor wife, whose name was Delphine, and whose hand in marriage he won in a poker game with her dad, Delphine. Say her name. Say her name, <laughs> Delphine. We see you, Delphine. Well. That's uh, he won her hand in the, I, and I, I never tried that route. I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know I could go poker playing for a bride. Yeah, there you go. And with that, I am crawling back out of the rabbit hole. I have brought Delphine back from nowhere and I have, I am ready to hear about your recipes. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. Oat cake. Let's talk about recipes. So as I mentioned earlier, I love these intersections. I love these borders between, uh, you know, hot and cold and sour and sweet and, you know, kind of fruits like hot and cold again. I, so the idea of utilizing fruit and a savory capacity is to me is just I love it. I love that combination. So 
going back to the Wayback Machine, uh, to my cookbook, Eat Like There's No Tomorrow, uh, we, we were able to do this kind of show where we followed the story of Georgia agriculture and we, we traveled all over. And we went to the aforementioned Peach County in, uh, in Georgia. And we met this lovely family, the Pearsons, who have been growing uh, peaches in that land for for three generations. And they sent us home with a case of peaches in varying degrees of ripeness. Because, right, you have some that are kind of uh, not quite ripe. And so to utilize those, sometimes you put them on the grill and that that grilling process. Do you like grilled oh, God. fruit? Oh, gosh. Dan, we do one for uh, – we used to do it in the restaurant. We'll do it at weddings a lot where we'll do a grilled stone fruit oh, salad yeah. with grilled peaches and nectarines. And just some uh, really pretty fresh greens. Oh, they're just, just oh, and uh, uh, oh, n- not macadamia. Yeah, maybe macadamia. No, not macadamia nuts. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It just these beautiful nuts he puts on there, and now I can't remember their name. Well, you know, uh, you said grilled stone fruits. I would say they were grilled droops. Uh, anyway, yes, so, yes, you would. <laughs> I was able to work that word in one more time before we <laughs> before we uh, say goodbye. Anyway, the uh, so Marcona the, almonds. There you go. Those are awesome. God, those are Delphine. Good. Delphine. So the uh, the underripe peaches I grilled to kind of get them, you know, with a little softer and they get sweeter. The super ripe peaches that are just like falling apart and the fruit flies are already kind of staking their claim. Those are great for making like a salsa, right? So you can kind of take those already broken pieces and, and chop those up. So I, I created this dish, which is essentially a quesadilla because, you know, who, who doesn't like a quesadilla? Uh, where I used brie as the as the cheese inside the quesadilla with some of those grilled peaches um, with a little bit of grilled chicken thigh in there that I'd spice with cinnamon. And then I made this tomato, peach, and fennel, throwback to our fennel episode, oh, wow. uh, salsa, which is just, again, kind of this loose um, salsa makes you think almost something you dip chips in. I'm, this is more almost like a uh, a salad, right? It's almost more like what yeah. they, the Italians call like a checca, which is, you know, bigger pieces of tomato yeah, it sounds and more peaches. like a bruschetta or something. Bruschetta, exactly, that be, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, right on top of that, that gooey, brie, warm quesadilla. So I'm going to put the recipe for that up there, but it's a great way to utilize your underripe and your overripe peaches because sometimes you get a bag, a piggly wiggly bag full of, uh, full of both. <laughs> <laughs> isn't isn't that isn't that just what life is about? Yep, life Sometimes is like end a, up with a, a piggly wiggly bag piggly of peaches. Bag. Yep. <laughs> so I decided um, to make up a cocktail for you today because uh, we. I just was thinking about the peach melba and how that would make kind of a a fun drink, and so I made this up for you. Mm. So it's a peach melba cocktail um, with egg white. I've used peach schnapps which will give it the, I mean, peach schnapps is very strongly flavored. So it gives you a good, you know, good, strong peach flavor. Also gives you some sweetness, which I want. And Chambord, you know, there's your raspberry. Uh, Half and half, um, we're adding in there, and that's going to be your, you know, your nod to your ice cream. So first thing you're going to do is, and the reason why I put the egg white in there is the egg white is going to froth at the top and give you the kind of that, that luxurious kind of fluffy feeling that I like so much in a cocktail every now and then. So you're going to put one egg white into a cocktail shaker and you're going to shake the hell out of it. I mean, you have to shake it for like a minute. Just It's called a dry shake. So it's just the egg white in, in the shaker. Shake, shake it until it's frothy. Then you're going to add your vodka, your peach schnapps, your chambord, your half and half and ice and shake it again for probably about 30 seconds. You really have to shake it. Strain it into a double rocks glass that's filled with ice. You're gonna garnish it with fresh, uh, like a nice slice of fresh peach, but also a couple of drops of um, vanilla extract over the mm. foam. I, I made three of them yesterday because I, I just, like I said, I just 
made up this recipe. My mother-in-law loved it. Dan loved it. It's really, uh, it's a fun cocktail and one that I made just for you. And I call it a peach Melba cocktail. I should have called it a- The Delphine or whatever her name was. Delphine. That's, come on. You know, it's too late. It's too late. I put it on paper. She gets snubbed in history once again. (laughs) We can put everything together. Here's, Here's Droopy Dog talking about Delphine. Her name was Delphine. Makes me mad. So (laughs) it's... The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. If you think that these, any of these recipes sound delicious and you would like to get them, go to our our website and get them. Uh, Our website is buttidigestpodcast.com. Our email is buttidigestpodcast at gmail.com. Facebook and Instagram is buttidigestpodcast. Twitter, buttidigestpod. Also, on our website, you're going to find a link to Hans's Lines of Spices. And if, he, if I can get you to get your book up there, I need you to get your book so people can download it. Yes. Just like they can do download that. my cocktail book, The New Old Bar. Uh, special thanks to our web designer, Hewitt Rabel, to our editor, Natalie DeChico. Special music by Corey Goodrich. And our theme music is by Brian Reyes. Um, once again, if you're enjoying the show, give it, tell, you, tell your pals. Uh, I listen. That is so important. We got a nice letter from somebody that ordered your uh, your cocktail book the other day, and how excited they were! It's uh, you know that kind of feedback is not just the fact that we sold a cook a cookbook or a, a recipe book or whatever. That's always great too. But just that interaction, that community. That's that's what we're after, people. We we want your love and affection and praise. That's what it's all about. All right, are we done here? Oat cake. I think we're done. Delphine, say her name. <laughs>